Warning, taking political action is absolutely necessary. If we don't, there's a good chance that everything is going to fall apart and burn. But on the bright side, taking political action, organizing, that kind of stuff can be a lot of fun and really rewarding and joyful. I guess those are both good things, avoiding burning destruction and joyful. Yeah, it's all, so that's that's a warning <laughs> for you all. You are wrong, 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 Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Aaron. And my name is Sean. Yeah, welcome to the show. Sit back, relax. Would you like some wine? We have white or red. Or just sparkling grape juice if you're not drinking alcohol, which we totally respect. There's no pressure. Mm -hmm. We've heard that actually alcohol can cause cancer, so Google that. Today on the show, we have Amy and Liz, who produced the show Rebel Steps, which is an excellent podcast that you should definitely check out. Yeah, definitely. And if you're someone who's interested in doing political organizing, if you see people doing all these actions out there, you know, putting up posters, creating unions, knocking doors, holding rallies, doing all this stuff, and you're saying, how do I get involved? How do I join an organization, the DSA, Black Rose, political parties, community assemblies? solidarity networks this shit's confusing i need help that's what rebel steps is about and that's what this episode is about so please everyone put on your most comfortable door knocking shoes because tonight we're hitting 100 doors remember when you're out there fighting for a better world when people are at each other's throats when so and so is mad at so and so for this reason or that reason everyone should go knock 100 doors and talk about eco-socialism you'll feel a lot better afterwards and you'll actually fucking accomplish something that was taught to me by Wendy Peterson, the awesome downtown east side activist. I always think about it whenever I'm mad organizing. <laughs> and then I go knock those damn doors. Mad angry or mad uh, like unhinged? Like <laughs> angry, yeah. Oh, okay. When I'm mad unhinged, I do not door knock. I go online. That's good. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by people who think you should literally never organize ever. <laughs> what? what? You telling me these people don't think you should use time-tested tactics to connect with people who have shared values and push for shared goals? Yeah, I guess they're the sponsor of the show. They're the sponsor of our episode. That happened. Yeah, this is what it says here. They sponsored it. So these people, not only are they literally the sponsor of the show, but they literally think that you shouldn't go and talk to your neighbors, build people through common interests, use petitions to build contact lists and do fundraising to have directly democratic committees determine ends for political <laughs> opportunities and leverage against those who have power to achieve a more <laughs> utopian society over time. Am I getting this right? This yes, is it says right here. They sponsored, they, and they don't think anyone should do those things. Not just that you. They think no one should. Bananas. I can't believe it. But hey. They paid the dime, they get the time. That's advertising, so 
Proud yeah, sponsor. You, you love that slogan. I've heard you say it many a time. Yeah, it's an old advertising slogan I learned back in the copy department of Winston and Edges, which is the largest public relations and advertising firm in Vancouver. I worked there from 1984 to 1996, and I got to say, those were the best 12 years of my life. I learned so much, made so many connections. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that's actually why our podcast has such great ads all the time. Yeah, you were thinking like, how do they get an ad from the concept of death. It's like, for my time in the service, that's what us cigar-toting secretary-having admin call the service. Advertising, that is. Fascinating. And just to be clear, I mean, the whole premise of a market economy is that well-informed consumers making rational decisions will make better buying prices, and through voting with your dollars, you're able to achieve a society that rationally responds to market mechanisms. But the exact job of an ad man, like me and my many brothers, as we still meet in secret societies, is to make sure consumers are misinformed and made irrational so at the functional heartbeat of capitalism there folks that's the sponsor of the show was actually something else earlier but the phrase reminded us of the so yeah you pay the dime you get the time that's what we say in advertising when you get a weird ad and you play it even if you're confused by it you play the ad because they paid the dime they get the time they're saying you shouldn't organize and they're the sponsor of the show contrary to the spirit of this episode but we gave it platform because we know our ideas are stronger and they paid us. And they paid the dime they got the time. So maybe first, if you don't mind, introduce yourselves and what you do within Rebel Steps. You want to go first? Sure. Hi, I'm Amy, and I'm the producer of Rebel Steps. I'm Liz, and I'm the host and also co-producer of the podcast. And we're sisters, if that's interesting, if you want to include that. <laughs> I think it's interesting. <laughs> What is Rebel Steps? What is this podcast that you do? Rebel Steps is a podcast about taking action and about building skills. So it really came out of a moment right after the 2016 election where there were a lot of articles being written that were like, all you have to do is like read this book or donate to this organization or call your senator. These are like the main things you can do. And um, Amy and I felt like these three things were not the sum total of what people could do. And we wanted to like sort of spotlight some different action items. Yeah, it's about taking action because that is an important thing to do. And a lot of people are afraid to like sort of take the first step, which is, of course, a little bit goofy because that's what the name is about, taking the first step into activism. Both of us have had like political periods of our life before the 2016 election. But after the election, it kind of like sparked a new period of activism for us. And so we felt like it was important to like record our own first experiences a little bit. And also there were a bunch of people around us that were being politicized by it. And we wanted to like record their moments as well. Just because we feel like there's a lot of media around people who have like already been involved for maybe like 10 years or 15 years, and they might not remember what it's like to step into a room where they don't know anyone, or they might not remember how difficult it is to like engage with new ideas. So we kind of wanted to record what we were going through and what our friends were going through. It's really cool. I listened through the first season of Rebel Steps and I really, really enjoyed it as like interesting like clips of interviews with organizers and just broad concepts that come up within organizing and, and that emphasis that sort of goes through it around encouraging people to action and encouraging people really, really crucially to believe in themselves as like the foundation of action. I think every episode ends with you saying, believe in yourselves and each other. And I think that's just like the most wholesome thing in the world. And it's so crucial to like organizing. Why do you think it is that people have trouble having confidence organizing? I think 
it's scary to do anything new. And so doing organizing is new for people. And then it's also some of these spaces can be really intimidating. So like going to a meeting for the first time or going to a march for the first time can be it's just sort of a scary, intimidating thing. Yeah. And so a lot of the podcast was influenced by this book, Hegemony How To by Jonathan Smucker, who was an Occupy organizer in New York. And he talks about how the term activist is actually a fairly new term and how it hasn't been something that has been used for that long. Like earlier, you had people being called like socialists or suffragettes. But recently, we've had this rise of this term activist, which has really made it feel like being an activist is somehow a role that's different than just being a person in your community that cares about your community. So we really wanted to like push back against that. The first episode is called Be an Organizer. And it's sort of this idea that like anyone who wants to make their community a better place can do it. And it's not like a specialized role. It's not something that you have to go to grad school for. It's something that like, we can all do by sort of pitching in and, and trying new things out. But I think it's like pretty normal if you hear the word activist and to be kind of like, well, I don't know. I don't identify with that word. Like I'm not an activist yet. I haven't done all these crazy things that everyone's doing. So we really wanted to push back against that. And I think letting people know that it's normal to feel intimidated by the word activist or that it's like a very normal reaction to feel like you don't identify with that word was a huge part of why we made the podcast. Yeah, the way the media talks about activists sometimes too, like it really puts it in this space of like, oh, they're crazy and they're just like <laughs> out there demanding things that don't make sense and they don't have any like cohesive, they're just holding up signs that mean nothing and they don't want to actually do anything. And when you just mentioned the word being new, it's also kind of portrayed in a specific way sometimes that isn't very positive. What's the sort of difference between an activist and an organizer? Like you're talking about be an organizer. Activist is an intimidating term. Organizer seems like a pretty intimidating term also. Like when I have talked about organizing to Aaron before, he's been like, what is organizing? Like, what does that even mean to be an organizer? It sounds like this. I organize my house sometimes. Like <laughs> I like to tidy up. Is that it? Yeah, it's like this big frightening, like I'm going to sort human beings and then <laughs> point them towards the ends of universal human emancipation. What's the distinction there? Or how do you look at it? I don't know that I feel like organizing and activists are necessary. I think they're just sort of almost two words for the same thing. But I think we talk about organizing because to me, it like says more of like what you actually need to do, which is like get people organized to do things in like kind of a structured way. I think like organizing at the most basic is just like getting other people to do things. If you're participating, you're maybe just showing up. But I feel like you become an organizer when you actually sort of make other people able to be involved as well. Yeah, I think I use the terms activist and organizer pretty interchangeably in my everyday life, though they, they have different connotations, I think. With organizing, I sort of see it as the place where tactics and strategy meet. So you'll have people who are like really into certain tactics, like we just need to be out in the streets or we just need to be doing mutual aid. Like this is the specific thing we need to be doing. And then you have people who are like really thinking about the strategy, the long-term plan. And I think organizing is where you're taking these tactics and putting them in a reasonable order to help you achieve your strategy. Like it's sort of connecting the dots between these two things that are sometimes kind of put in separate buckets. And then as far as like what organizing actually looks like day to day, it can mean so many different things. And one of the things in Rebel Steps that we tried to focus on was sort of talking about what those everyday things might look like. It might mean going to a meeting. It might mean going to an action. It might mean supporting people who are in jail, like so doing jail support after an action. It might be all these different things, but the actual act of organizing is sort of putting them in order and making them part of a bigger movement. 
Yeah, I know that makes sense. Like putting all these chaotic elements into, as you said, an order, that's a really helpful way to think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of tempted my intuitions anyways. It's like activism is sign waving, marching, like that sort of like public idea of activism where organizing is like the spreadsheets and the phone calls and making people come out to events and like all the invisible stuff that happens behind the scenes. Like when you have a big protest, it doesn't just like spring forth automatically from all these people, like all agreeing that it's horrible to do a military invasion of Venezuela for no reason. But it actually takes people, you know, making posters, sending emails, scheduling, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes I can get a little frustrated with people who come into spaces where we're trying to do organizing and are just like, well, why aren't you doing more just getting into the streets? And it's like, well, we want to do that when it's important and when it's strategic. But just our small group of like 20 people going into the streets every day. It doesn't even matter how many days in a row we do that. It's still not getting us to the next level that we want to be at, or it's still not bringing new people in and looking for that difference of like, you know, not just taking action, but also finding ways to connect more people to that action and to like bring more people into it and to move forward as a group. And the stuff you're saying about it being spreadsheets and email and stuff is something that comes up a lot because people are like, oh, some of this is boring or like some of this is not like it doesn't feel glamorous. But it's like, yeah, it's not it's not glamorous always. It's like most of the time you're just like, OK, hey, everyone, don't forget the meeting is on Friday. I guess people get pulled into sort of radical politics and stuff and they want to have these climactic showdowns with the police and they want to like we're going to have this rapturous conflict with the state where we free the people somehow but then the actual like day-to-day of it is excel spreadsheets yeah even that if you want a rapturous day of culmination or something you got to plan for that (laughs) it's not just going to happen out of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, actually, how do you that's something I've run into with organizing with activist groups, too, is like a person swings by the meeting. They haven't done anything. There's no sweat equity whatsoever. They haven't contributed to anything that's hard. They haven't even seen the trajectory of the group over the months that it's taken to get where we are. And they're like, why aren't you doing this? We should be doing this. Or like, you should be doing this. And it's just like, how do you deal with that as an organizer when someone's just being sort of like low-key shitty, but they don't even realize the type of shitty they're being because they think they have it all figured out, but they don't actually do anything? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because like Amy and I are having like some, (laughs) we're having some frustrations with some of the open groups that we're a part of because of this, but we've kind of promised ourselves we would try not to like get like too bogged down in the weeds around it. But I mean, at this point, I'm like, I don't know if I handle it super well when people do that because it's just, it's those people often play into this narrative of like, I'm the most radical because I have the most critiques of the action you're doing. And a lot of times that kind of forces a bias towards inaction. So that person, they might only be there one meeting, but they actually can cause like conflicts and they can stop actions from happening even when they're not present just by like making people afraid to even do anything because they might not be doing the like most radical or most critical thing. So it's not something I have an answer to, but I'm trying to find ways to communicate to those people in the moment just to be like very real about it i don't have like a quick and easy tip for it it's just like it can be really difficult and disruptive yeah that's something we're talking about in season two a lot more like so season one is a lot about sort of like here's stuff you can do on your own to start getting involved and season two is a little more focused around groups and like group dynamics so we're going to be talking about like decision making and conflict resolution and things like that because the thing we've been telling ourselves is like it gets way more complicated you know it's great to go out and put up a sticker and all those first steps are really important for building your confidence and starting to feel good about being involved. 
And then it just gets so much more complicated when you're trying to work with like a big group. Oh, something I should mention to people who haven't listened to Rebel Steps before. One of the things that makes it a really great show is it's really smooth listening. It's also really short episodes. It's really bingeable. Like if you've got a job where you're like on a assembly line or whatever, where you can like move your hands and listen to the podcast, like you can listen to the whole first season in a day. And there's just like tons of great insight in there. So I just I encourage people to go check it out. There's a lot of like really, really interesting aspects to it. When's season two coming out? To be announced, last time we made the mistake of setting a date for ourselves a little before we wanted to, and it was a little intense towards the end, but I would be, say, sometime in the fall. Mm-hmm. We're working on it. We're making progress. And also, just it is very short. It's two hours total listening. If you're listening to like on a faster speed, which Amy and I often put our podcast on like 1.5 speed, you know, mm. it's an hour and a half. That's easy. Yeah, I feel like it's got a vibe that like... I could share it with my mom or my sisters and stuff who like are outside of politics and have them take something from it. It's really, really good. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was definitely like part of the goal. Like when we were figuring out like who our audience for it was, people who went to the Women's March was sort of like the thing we had in mind. Hey, Amy, what's up? Hey. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, happy to to come help with the cats anytime. They just really like to be pet while I'm cutting their nails. And it's so important to cut their nails because, like, a lot of people don't know this, but older cats, their toenails can get ingrown. It's really gruesome. So, yeah, thanks for just helping me give them, like, the best cat grooming situation. Yeah, of course. Well, I believe in working together, so. Cool. Well, let's just here. Let's just get my little cat Speck up on your your knee. And here, if you could just pet him a little bit while I'm starting to brush him so he doesn't get too stressed out. Perfect. Okay. It's great that you're here because I was just thinking about the conversation we had about organizing the other day. And I found this really great group that were organizing kind of the way we were talking about, like we should be organizing. They were just using a lot of really cool tactics. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Cool. So the group is called ACT UP, which is an acronym for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Have you heard of them? I have, but I didn't know that was an acronym. How interesting. So they're a direct action advocacy group that started in the 80s to really support people with AIDS and impact the way that AIDS was being addressed because it wasn't being addressed fast enough. And here, actually, before I get into it, if you could just kind of hold Specs Paul out for me, I'll just start trimming his nails a little bit. Oh, yeah, just, just like this? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Great. So in 1987, ACT UP formed. They had like 400 people when they formed. And in their first month, this is crazy yeah. to me, it just happened in their first month, they had a huge demonstration with 250 people on Wall Street. And during that, 17 people were arrested. But what was really powerful is that before that action even happened, there was an op-ed in the New York Times describing what issues they were concerned with, like what their demands were, what was important to them. Having that action or having the op-ed, either of those would have been really powerful, but like putting those together was just like that made it even more powerful. You know, people were able to understand what the action was about. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like they really brought together multiple tactics to create a moment. Yeah, it was super strategic. You know what, I'm just gonna give Speck a little treat really quick, because he's doing such a good job getting his nails done, don't you think? Oh yeah, Yeah. just lovely. He's really, I don't know why you really needed me to come help you out. It's just, I want him to have like a relaxing time, and you know how much he loves being held. It's true. Okay, so there were a couple more actions that really stood out. So one was in April of 1987 on a, Tax Day, actually, on April 15th, they did a big action 
to the audience of people filing their tax returns. So like before the internet, which is like I know impossible to imagine, but you had to go to the post office to do your taxes. And so everyone was lined up and um, the news would always do a news report on people lining up to do their taxes yeah. at the last minute. So they kind of seized this moment where they had a captive audience and where they had members of the media just already there. And they used it to launch the Silence Equals Death Project, which like unveiled the pink triangle on the black background as their logo and they also were just using silence equals death as their slogan so they have this like really powerful logo this really powerful statement silence equals death but they had like a huge action to kind of put it out there and so the media had to report on it you know and I just thought that was like so strategic and so important to like pair all those things together yeah it sounds like they did a really good job and like I definitely have seen that around so it must have had some longevity too yeah for sure cool well I feel like Specs nails are all done now so you wanted to move on to Taven my other cat she oh, yeah, let, me so, just, let me just put her down over here. So she gets so stressed out. I'm yeah. just going to give her a treat right out of the gate just to yeah. head off any stress that she could possibly be experiencing right now. Yeah. So in October of 1988, they had one of their most successful demonstrations. Yeah. So they actually shut down the FDA for a day. And they did a really good job yeah. of researching very specifically what was wrong with the FDA's regulations around new drugs treating HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And they were able to like give a really precise list of demands. Like, these are the things we need to change. And that precise list of demands yeah. had a really big impact because the FDA and the yeah. NIH, like the next year, started kind of implementing some of those demands. And so I think this really shows that like you can have a big action, yeah. but if you don't have demands, it's it's really hard for people to know how to respond to yeah. your action. And, th and there might be people who are like sympathetic to your cause, but if they don't know how to act, then they might just get yeah. kind of frustrated and, and not want to like join your movement, you know? Totally. It sounds like they had a solution yeah. in mind and they put that out there and used a lot of pressure to like make that happen. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's like you and I have talked about like the spectrum of allies, how there's like some people who are with you already and some people who are against you. And there's all these people in between. Yeah. And we're just trying to like encourage those people to like be allies, yeah. like be on our side. And it was cool to see how it's just so much easier to like start taking action yeah. when somebody gives you something to do, like help us do this really important thing. Yeah, I just feel like there's a lot yeah. we can learn from them. Yeah, I definitely really impressed yeah. with all the tactics they've been using. You know what? I'm just like so excited about that. I'm just going to give both Spec and Taven yeah. another treat. Yeah. Just bring them in on this moment, yeah. this like yeah. moment of like yeah. uh, this epiphany that we're having yeah. right now. Yeah, totally. We yeah. should we should celebrate. Now it's time for a Wrongtopia history moment. Today we're going to be talking about a very important activist in Wrongtopia history. Adam Rundog, famous utopian social theorist, invented the ecology of tactics framing in 2006. Comrade Rundog proposed that political action could be seen through three complementary frames. Entryism and game-playing, narrative and interpersonal work, and prefiguration or actualization. And these three things together were always present in all tactics, and they would sort of lean on each other. So just give an example of like a tactic, and I'll show you how the frame works. Okay, a tactic. Hmm. How about electing a socialist politician at a local level? So... Electing a socialist politician at the local level engages all three spheres of the Rundog ecology of tactics system. Now, in order to elect a socialist, you need to do a lot of narrative and interpersonal work. That means face-to-face -face conversations with people, talking about the candidate and how they stand to benefit under the realization of his social well-being policies. 
There's also an element of game playing that is recognizing what does it take to get on the ballot as a socialist? How are elections won? What sort of systems does it take to win elections? You have to fundraise and so on and so on. That's sort of the game playing and entryism part. And your ultimate goal is to become part of this parliamentary body of some kind and then have access to the resources of that body as a result of that. So that's through your own wage or the ability to hire other staff or an office and so on. Also, when in power, you're trying to actualize and prefigure the world that you desire in the outcome. So a good socialist local politician might create ample public housing, might create a universal daycare program, might bring about a more universal version of health care or increase the welfare rates. You know, these are all things that are steps towards that sort of ideal outcome and are prefigurative in a sense, but could more accurately be described in this context as actualizing, actualizing the world that you want to see. But again, it takes a lot of narrative work to achieve that sort of end in the first place, because according to the game mechanics of the system, people need to be convinced of this candidate to vote for them and then also support their work in power and not remove them from power requires a sustained narrative work. Okay, what about a general strike? A general strike, according to the Rundog Ecology of Tactics framework... That's built through unions, which if you're talking about existing unions as a type of entryism, right? And it takes narrative work to convince people that the conditions are intolerable enough that as interpersonal conversations of convincing people and raising consciousness that they're able to actually get the type of unity required for a general strike. So it's entryist. A general strike is less on the prefigurative side. I guess you could make the argument that in a truly utopian society, people wouldn't need to work. So that's sort of prefigurative in that sense, or actualizing a workless society briefly. But that's sort of a stretch. I think general strike is low on the prefiguration and high on the power games, high on the entryism and high on the narrative work. That doesn't mean it's bad, by the way. It's just yeah, different all these things, things have different amounts of all the elements. And, and Rundog's idea with the ecology is that you look at all these things and how they can complement each other or work against each other. And how do you get uh, his big thing was how do you get narrative work aligned and build sort of a narrative ecology in which these many other tactics can bloom and, and be successful in relation to each other. It's unfortunate that he was hit by that train. I think the last thing he wrote on his last pad, I have finally discovered the secret to it all. Oh my goodness, I'll be right back. My dog has run across some train tracks. I will fetch him and be here to finish the culminating aspect of my essay momentarily. And uh, yeah, never pick the pen up again. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard when you've been slammed into by a train and your whole body no longer works because you're dead. Yeah, that's a good point. His body did stop working and that probably can explain why the his work was never finished. finished yeah. yeah. Uh, so a bittersweet moment in Rongtopia history. Still use that analysis to this day. Thank you, Adam Rundog. Gone but not forgotten. I shall someday, when I save up the money, visit your liquefied body in the vials it resides at the Wrongtown Museum. You're involved with the organization MAC. That's the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council. What type of work does MAC do? What MAC was made to do and what it has continued to do very successfully is to continue anarchist infrastructure in the city between large mobilizations. So, you know, a group of people realized that, like, every time there was a mobilization, they had to, like, reorganize legal support. They had to reorganize jail support. They had to reorganize communication and press support. And so it was started to sort of, like, upkeep all those resources so that they were available when any moment happened that needed them. And the other function of the organization is to 
really invite new people into the anarchist community in New York. So doing outreach events, having open meetings where anyone can come and hang out and ask questions. Those are the two primary functions of MAC right now. Our general assemblies are sort of like a town square kind of for the New York anarchist world. So like a lot of different organizations will like come and like either talk at the meetings or like have breakouts at the meetings or meet new people. But they've kind of just become the sort of large melting pot where anyone can come kind of meet new people. So totally understanding that I don't want to treat you as an oracle of organizing and assume that you have got a, a quick and easy answer to every question. Yeah, we're definitely not oracles of organizing by any means. Here's a timeless <laughs> question that's we're... existed for years and years and no one's found an answer. So what's the answer? <laughs> These impossibly hard questions like we do this podcast and we already know everything. It's perfect. I think we should double down on what I said earlier, which is like we made this sort of as we were getting involved for anyone who thinks we have all the answers, we're very sorry <laughs> that we that they felt that way. We didn't intend to make it seem that way. But yeah, one thing that I also would encourage people is to like, as they're getting involved, to like kind of record their journey sort of the way we did, because we think it's just really interesting to hear about like everyone's first steps. Because there's a lot of people getting involved every day in different things, and those stories aren't always told. We're more talking about the higher theory and stuff. But sorry, I know you're asking us a question as non-oracles, but I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> the story thing is really interesting, important to be because like if you can't see a way to yourself participating in these things you're like I'm here now I'm at my house there's this gap between where I am and where I imagine I might want to be and like I don't know how you get there so ha having stories of how other people took those steps and like made the transition into being an organizer I think is uh really important like that's how people learn how to do things is by hearing stories about other people doing them and being like oh yeah okay I kind of see how that works this then this then this and then yeah yeah it's also through like practice so like with rebel steps I'd like people to get practice doing organizing so like inviting your friends to a march is like maybe organizing three people but then you've like learned some things about how often you need to remind people that they need to come somewhere <laughs> right. and then you can sort of level up from there so I think like when we made the podcast the end of the podcast is sort of like where we were when we made the podcast so it's not like we know so much beyond that so much as being like we wanted to take that moment and record what we had learned before we forgot what it felt like to learn those things. Because once you've been organizing for many, many years, you kind of forget that for someone who's new to it, it's hard to organize three or four people to go to a march with you. So that's sort of a framing of like where we were when we made the podcast. Going back to these backseat drivers, the more radical than thou, and also the twin issue, the opposite. It's like we have these overconfident people. They've got everything all figured out. If only all the people who actually man the spreadsheets go and do it. And then you have people on the opposite side that are like, I can't see myself doing this. It's too intimidating. It's You have on one hand a confidence deficit, and then on the other hand, like the surplus of confidence in places where it doesn't belong. I guess I'm, I'm trying to, to think. redistribute the confidence. We need to redistribute the confidence. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think I want to live in a post-scarcity, confidence post-scarcity world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's part of the job of an organizer, too, is to like take people who are on the verge of being able to participate and like convincing them that their voice is welcome and that they have contributions to make. But is there anything that comes to mind on how we move people from those lower confidence stages to like higher confidence stages? If someone in our audience is like, I'm an aspiring organizer. Oh, I realize now the two parts of my job are to do things and ask other people to do things. How can I ask other people to do things better and increase their capacity to do more things? One is to like just be encouraging when people do take small steps. So like at Mac, we have like a greeter. So when people come to the meeting, there's someone there to welcome them. 
and we have someone called the question comrade. We have an orientation at the meeting to let people know what's up. And then at the end, we introduce the question comrade who's like, oh, if anything was confusing during the meeting or anything, like come and ask me. So I think really acknowledging that like not everyone knows what's going on. They might not know the jargon and being really like friendly and and welcoming to encourage that. It's like you showed up and we're like happy that you're here. So we're going to like support that. I like to call this radical hospitality, just like being nice to people. Um, (laughs) I do a lot of hospitality work because I've worked in like restaurants a lot. And I think part of the reason I bring that up is just that sometimes people are like, oh, being friendly, whatever, like I can do that or not do that. But like it is kind of hard sometimes to like put out that extra emotional energy to like say hi to every new person, even if you know they may never come back again. But I think it's a really important part of inviting people to like learn more about new ideas and like learn more about new organizations. Yeah, the other thing is that, like, so Amy and I both talked about this a lot, how becoming political is sort of like working out a muscle. Like, your political muscles aren't very strong when you start. You know, you're not really sure where to start, and, like, everything's a little confusing. But you have to, like, take small steps in order to, like, find out what the bigger steps might be. And so, like, I think part of being an organizer is just, like, honoring people's first steps and just being, like, you know, maybe going to a rally and holding a sign to somebody who's been involved for a long time doesn't feel like that big of a deal. But, like, if you've never done anything before and you go and you take pictures and you tell your friends that you're doing this, like, that's, like, a really great way to start seeing what feels right for you and start like exploring other ideas and like I just want to be friendly to people that are trying those first steps and just say like hey like that's so cool that you really wanted to try something new so like here's a couple other things and like really the whole podcast is like that right we are like okay look there's all these people where the women's march was maybe the first thing they ever did that felt like really explicitly political beyond just like voting and so like where did those people go from here and rebel steps was our like attempt to try and do that in a podcast form but you can do that in real life also just like with your friends just talking about like hey like we all did that thing together felt cool I'm going to try this other thing you want to come do it with me there's this really great line from Smokey in the podcast he's like a friend of ours through Mac and uh, he says I always thought of myself as more of an inviter than an organizer so I think also just like thinking about it that way of like a one way to give people confidence is just to invite them to something maybe they've never even thought of doing before yeah bringing up the first steps and like you have to take the first steps in order to see what the next steps might be because a lot of the time when you're talking about political organizing the goals themselves seem so big and so distant to say oh do you want to work with us on stopping climate change or something can just be it's it sounds completely overwhelming and that sense of overwhelmingness could be a real barrier for a lot of people and like part of it would be welcoming them like hey you came to this meeting you held up a sign you did something that's great that's fantastic here's some other stuff we can offer that you could do as well. I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on bridging that gap between what people can do as individuals and the giant goal of changing society for the better. So with activism, I feel like it's trying to find the sort of middle course most of the time or a balanced course. You have to keep those big utopian goals in mind in order to stay inspired. Like you have to remember, like, this is what we're working for. We're working for a world where everyone's basic needs are taken care of. We're working for a world where everyone's treated equitably and a better society. This is what we're working for. But if we only look at that, yeah, it seems like overwhelming. But then on the other hand, if you only look at the spreadsheets and if you only look at like the calls, that's like equally depressing. So it's challenging, but you have to keep like both things in your head a little bit. And 
I think where I found that balance is by just having like a really great community of people who like, you know, one night maybe they want to just go to our regular meetings. But then like the next week we might have like a film night where we're watching films that sort of have like interesting leftist ideas that are inspiring. And then like maybe another day I'm just like going to the beach with my anarchist friends and we're talking about politics, but we're all just sort of resting and like having a nice day. And like and just realizing that like there's no one action or one thing that's going to be the best organizing, right? Like it has to be a little bit of all of these different things in order for a movement to grow. And sometimes I get really stuck in being like, what is the one thing that I could do that would be like the perfect thing (laughs) that is like the only good thing there has to be out there. And then if I just do that one thing, then I will block the key to organizing. This is just not how it works. We have to have like a little bit of inspiring things and a little bit of hard work. And that's how we can really grow it. I don't know. You talk about sometimes like a movement ecology. So I feel like it sort of ties in with that idea of like a lot of different things happening at the same time. If you try and do it all or think that you can sort of make these big changes, you're going to just get burned out. So I think like being very realistic about what you are able to contribute and not overexerting yourself is really important. And that also ties in with like accepting sort of the amount of change you can actually make and sort of being realistic about it and appreciating that it's like, oh, if I just made one person get involved and then they went on to do something like that's still really amazing and that all of those little actions add up to making those bigger changes. No one person can solve these big problems. So, of course, it's overwhelming to think about if you can solve those problems, but we all have to like do it together. The thing you mentioned about beach days as well got me thinking just in terms of burnout and how important it is to, as you were also saying, keep in mind what you can actually do and like work within your capacities and like not try and destroy yourself <laughs> to, to achieve something immediately or like take on more than you actually can do and then end up doing less than you would have been able to do because you tried to do too much. That's my theory on what went wrong with the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution is they stopped taking weekends and they all started just being like too intense about the liberation of the people. And then their whole path got like distorted by the fact that they weren't resting. On the ecology of tactics front, the complementarity between those rest days and the hard work days, I think is like, it's a really important point to underline. Maybe one of the secrets to organizing that we can pull out is like taking breaks and sleeping in sometimes. And uh, (laughs) chilling at the beach is definitely like one of the most important tactics for actualizing utopia. I think. Not the only tactic, but you want to use it. I'm a total beach bum. (laughs) It's my personal goal to go to the beach every weekend during the summer because we live in New York. You just take the train. It's an hour, you know. My love of the beach is a whole tangent. We can do another episode on that, you know. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) resting is really important. One thing you'll find is that if people don't take rest seriously as organizers, they can kind of come into meetings and be frustrated with people who aren't working as hard as they are. Just like well, I've been doing this like every day, you know, and now you have an idea who you who haven't been doing this 24 seven for your entire life, you know. And so also, (laughs) I think it's this thing, too, where it's like if you if you get too kind of like in the weeds on everything all the time and you're just like only thinking about how important the movement is, you kind of end up like isolated from the people around you and just in sort of a bad space and You know, like I've had moments where I've gotten like too wrapped up in certain things. At one point I had to make a list of every individual task I was doing and be like, okay, wait, which of these can I actually like give to somebody else? Because everything is kind of out of control. Like my personal life isn't in order, but I'm just like prioritizing only my political things. So I like made a very detailed 
list and was able to hand off a bunch of these tasks by doing that. So I would like definitely encourage anyone who's like, wow, I'm on the cusp of like just having a total breakdown to just be like, oh, okay, like take a minute before then and try and get rid of those tasks before you like spiral out and can't do these things. It was a good moment to like stop and reflect on what I was doing. Well, this looks like as good a place as any to set up the old beach parasol for a little bit of relaxing with all my anarchist comrades. Thanks for bringing the parasol, y'all. Yeah, it's good to sit in the shade when we come to the beach to enjoy the sun. I need the shade with no hair. It's oh. like, I yeah, keep yeah, out of the sun. Do you have to yeah. put sunscreen right on the top of the head? Yeah, but I try to wear a hat. Oh. A little uh, community self-defense from the solar rays, you know? Can you imagine if we were neoliberal about it and everyone brought their own tiny umbrella? Like, that wouldn't work at all. Oh man, what a disaster. I feel like this is a good time to bring up I brought a little cheese, some blueberries and crackers and I just want to share that with everyone because yeah I'm not shitty I'm not a neoliberal I'm a sharer that's me are you attacking me for bringing my own lunch sandwich like I can share it or whatever I just thought we'd all bring their own whatever you want to do with your food that's you I just want to say I'm sharing my brie so I'm cutting my sandwich into quarters and everyone can just help yourself not a neolib you can keep my quarter I think you're hungry so so. I need to confess that I only brought one book just for myself to read really want to apologize for that oh no worries I just want to lay in the sun and relax I'm not here to read I'm not here to think I read on my days off and I'm actually reading about an activist called Ella Baker. It's her biography of her whole life, talking about how there's many phases of being an organizer. Um, You know, that's what I find relaxing. I'm just going to watch, like, the water and stuff. A true beach day, you know, not, oh, I'm researching for the revolution, just beach day only, please. That's just so great that we're all attuned to what we need and we're asking for it. And it's so great to be part of such healthy, revolutionary culture, you know, just like a great community of people supporting each other. In the book I'm reading right now, Ella Baker is all about group-centered organizing and working together. So that's basically like what you're talking about right now. She's, it's just talking about how when she was growing up, she was really influenced by her grandmother, who was telling her stories about slavery and leaving the South. And then when she grew up, she moved to New York for a while and started organizing there. She seems like really cool. Wow. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. I think... But I think I just want to like make sure that we're letting everyone relax in their oh, own yeah, of course. in their own way. So just mm-hmm. yeah. Like totally. I mean it's just yeah. yeah. One of us brought a book about Ella Baker, three of us chose to not bring a book about Ella Baker, and that's something we can all It's, sort it's of super interesting, but yeah, yeah it sounds interesting. For sure. I'm gonna go ahead and open up the cheese just for anybody who wants it. Don't mind mm, if yeah. I do. Maybe I'll eat some of this delicious I'm cheese. Thanks so well. much for, for bringing it. Yeah, you're I welcome. got two sandwich halves to eat, so I'm gonna stay out of the cheese, but it looks great. So you bringing the sandwich means more cheese for all of us. Yeah, I, I, I snapped earlier. I don't know what I was thinking, y'all. I'm sorry about the whole sandwich thing. I'm <laughs> just a little hangry, sorry. We all make mistakes sometimes, and we learn from them, and we grow as people and as organizers, so that's cool, you know? Oh, you know, I couldn't help but overhear what you were saying about growing as organizers. Ella Baker, after she moved to New York, worked with the NAACP for 15 years, which is, like, super long. And she started out working there as a secretary, and then in 1943, she was named the director of branches, and started really pushing for decentralization of the leadership structure in the organization. And as director of branches, she traveled all over the country and formed a lot of relationships that seems like might be important to her like later down the line. 
1946, she left her full-time role and volunteered with the New York branch and became its president in 1952. So she was there for like 15 years. She must have learned so much. Oh, yeah, it's cool. It's more cool about her. Well, then in, in 1953, she resigned from the presidency and decided to run for the New York City Council. And she wasn't successful, but like it's really cool that, that she tried to do that in, in the 1950s. Yeah, it's like experimenting with different things, like seeing what works and like learning from them. That's like cool to hear. Yeah, the persistence she's showing. I feel like is really admirable. Just like uh, we're persistently enjoying, trying to enjoy a beach day. Yeah, without yeah there's politics. a lot of persistence going on in general today, but you know. I'm glad we could all agree that persistence is positive and admirable. Frankly, it's this persistence that gets people out to the events when you're doing those follow up calls. You know, I'm more of an organizer, I'm in it for the glory, sort of like short term, like conflict with the powers that be behind the scenes, oh, come out to this event, hey, how are you doing? Blah, not for me. Yeah, we all know that. It's it's so great to have so many different skill sets in our little community here, you know, people who want to go out and do the big things and people who want to do the behind the scenes, educating their comrades on a peaceful beach day. You know, we need we really need the whole ecology of tactics here, you know? That's what we have represented on this beach day. People who bring their own sandwich, people who bring cheese to share, many different types of organizers present. But I think we make each other stronger, you know, we learn from each other. Yeah, totally. Speaking of learning from each other, after trying to run for city council, she ended up working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and she was hired as the associate director, the first staff person. At the time, there was actually like mostly frustrating because she really clashed with a lot of the top-down leadership because she had such a focus on decentralized leadership and group-centered leadership. She persuaded them to invite a bunch of university students to the Southwide Youth Leadership Conference, and that's where SNCC was formed, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which coordinated the Freedom Rides of the 1960s. And her ideas about group-centered leadership and the need for radical democracy and social change were really able to spread through SNCC to student movements throughout the 1960s. So it sounds like she like learned a lot from growing as an organizer, and then was able to like share that with with new people. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like you're learning a lot right now. As well and I'm getting some of it I think I might have dozed off for a minute but hey some people have a nap at the beach other people keep on reading from their book out loud at the beach <laughs> look I'm just saying this is how I no, rest yeah, it's to- okay it's after working with Nick she continued to create and work with organizations through the end of her life so she really never gave up Later in her life, she helped form the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is an alternative to the Democratic Party in Mississippi. She worked on the Southern Conference Educational Fund that helped black and white students work together for social justice. And she helped form the Mass Party Organizing Committee, a socialist organization in New York City. So she really, like, just went at it. You know, she was always doing new stuff and growing and learning from it and then applying it to new things, which I think is super cool because, like, some organizers get really stuck in one place and they don't sort of take the lessons to the next step. Okay, I got to admit, you've inspired me. It was resistant. I wanted a day off, but like this is great. She sounds like an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. I had a bit of attitude earlier too, but now that I have a full half of the sandwich, now, don't get me wrong, I originally expected to eat the whole sandwich. That's neither here nor there. But now that I've got a little something in my stomach, it is sort of interesting hearing about politics on my day off. That's all I've got about her, actually. <laughs> so. Wait, is it? Oh, there's no more? Oh, man. Just when I was getting into it, now there's no more. I think looking inward at, you know, why did I resist the politics of the beach? I think I had a bone to pick with Amy based on her out organizing me. So then I got this whole thing about, like, no politics at beach day. I was just sort of needling at you. I'm sorry. I've got my own Ella Baker biography in my bag. I'm so interested in this. I was the dick. I'm sorry. 
I would want to apologize too because I know that all the work that people do is valuable and we do need people to do all sorts of different things. So sometimes I do more behind the scenes work or you do more media facing work, but I know that we really all need to work together and play to our strengths. You know, this beach day is just turning out absolutely wonderful. Uh, this cheese is top. It's so good. Ella Baker, it's so good. The sun, so good. Just thank, thank you, all of you, for coming with me. That's why we want to create a future where every day is beach day. Yeah, if you want. It's no, it's every not day is optional beach day. Mandatory authoritarian beach day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, such a great book. I'm, now I'm just going to go enjoy the waves, so I'll see you all later. Do you mind if I join you? No, no, no. If everyone's going to the water, you know, oh, yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna get up. I'm coming. I'm going to skip the water, everyone. I'm actually going to read more about Ella Baker because I want to learn more about how organizers develop over time because I've got a lot of developing to do. That's great. Ooh, water. Let's do Yay. it. Yeah. Surfing. In the electoral campaign I worked last year, we had the same problem of like Hercules organizers, individuals, myself and others that were just like, we'll do everything all the time. You can count on us. And then when something inevitably falls through the cracks because you're too busy, then you're like, well, fuck you. We didn't do it. But like we did so much like, (laughs) but it's like if you can't do it, you have to know to ask other people to do it. And if you take something on and you're accountable to it, even if you're being a Hercules, you have a responsibility to the group to kind of like either deliver it or distribute it or just acknowledge that it's not going to be delivered in time. And I think it has to do with like the high goals that we set. Like this is so important. So we're going to throw ourselves into this. And then that creates that sort of like Hercules, even though the body is saying no, like (laughs) working through the weekend kind of. Yeah, I should have seen Sean after that campaign last year, like the in the (laughs) days after he was just like, (laughs) could barely talk. He just looks so brain dead. He's like sitting there the whole time, like, uh, like two word answers to everything. It was like, yeah, I felt for you. And I wouldn't recommend this to anyone. I worked 75 days straight without a weekend over eight hour days. And there's a reason that we fought against doing that as a society. It doesn't actually make you better. It doesn't actually get you better results. And then at the end, literally, I can remember saying to Aaron as we're trying to like get back on doing the podcast of like, I find it so calming to draw. It makes me feel like a human again. <laughs> like, it was like a real feeling I had of like, oh, I can draw. I'm a person. Uh, yes, person, person. I remember this. Oh, no. Yeah, I like what you said, though, about once you've taken responsibility for something, at least like having a moment to give it to someone else. I think some people wait until it's just like too late and they're like, I'm just overwhelmed and I can't do this anymore. And then they leave and everyone's like, wait, oh, wow. Like, wait, what work were they doing? We don't even know actually what they were working on. And they're not here anymore to even tell us the important details of it. It's not selfish to be like, hey, you know what? I'm really exhausted. So this is the thing I was working on. Can you please just do it? Or somebody else needs to do it. I can't do it. You know? Yeah, you're basically making yourself into a single point of failure where if something happened to you or if you can't be working on this stuff anymore, you've now like really messed with the campaign or your organization or whatever the thing is. So distributing that work like is important for the longevity of it. And then also by picking up too much work, you're also robbing other people from learning how to do that. So like distributing it is also part of like helping new people get involved. Exactly.
I briefly did some like union organizing, helping organize workers at a casino. And one of the things that ended up causing trouble for us, and I knew this in theory going into it, was that if you have those single points of failure, it can be such a big problem. And that, that people sometimes have a tendency to like want to be that Hercules, want to be that hero and not distribute. And, but in union organizing, it's like you want to find sort of organic leaders that people tend to listen to and follow and then empower them to take action. But what I had happen on the campaign that I worked on is we had one of these guys and he wouldn't distribute it. And I think what it was to him was it was about that sort of loss of power of like distributing it meant that he would be less important, less powerful and less of a hero. But then what happened was that he started wavering on doing stuff altogether because he was burning himself out. He's like, oh, I'm not even sure if this union stuff is worth doing. But like if we had early on got him to distribute his sort of like social knowledge and like build up this group of people, then if he decided, oh, well, fuck it, I'm out, then the other people around him could have picked up that slack. But because he just pulled out really suddenly, we were just left super high and dry. So what comes to mind with what you're saying is just the unconscious drive for power being one of the things that keeps people like holding on to like these bigger sections of work because they know that if by distributing it, they no longer call the shots over it. And that as long as you're doing something, you're sort of in charge of it. Well, yes, that happens. <laughs> I don't know what to do. That happens all the time and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there needs to be like pressure. Like you can set up like a culture of sharing power and sharing those responsibilities. And I think if you like, I don't know that I've actually had this happen. So maybe it's a little theoretical, but like I think in theory, you could set up an organization where it was part of the culture that we shared responsibility for things and that could help. Yeah, we've talked a lot in our organization just about how like certain tasks are made invisible. And a lot of times those tasks are like the administrative task. Um, and they're often, not always, but often taken on by women. So it's been like a sort of a conversation about like how the work is distributed relating to gender in the organization. And one of the ways that we've tried to like work on this is to just like try and make as little work invisible as possible. So being like, hey, this is how this meeting is planned. If you want to get involved, here are the steps you can take to do it. And I don't know if it's been successful, but I would say that like it has been helpful to just be like, here's a list of what this working group does. Like that's something we did recently with the communications working group to just be like, here's like a long like laundry list of things that we do like every week and every day and everyone benefits from it but like not no one knows how it happens or for, or for some period of time some people just were like wait i thought that just like magically appeared i have no idea how that work <laughs> happens so so trying to just make it as like like visible and present as possible in like the events that people are putting on or in the meetings that they're putting on i think it demystifies the process a little bit and invites new people into it and i think just like shedding light on things will like make it more difficult for people to have like a power hold on them because like on those like a power hold on those like tasks just because it's like oh like you can't just control that we all know that it's happening we all know the process so like you can't just like go in and make a decision about it like it has to go through this process and now it's time for a brochalist against patriarchy moment Uh, hey, bro, bro, can you hang back with me for a bit? I wanted to run sure, what's up, by bro? you. I'll just, I'm just going to say it. It's a bit awkward. I have trouble, potential conflict or just saying things, and I'm building it up. Anyway, some of the people in the group have noticed that 
you have this habit you show up to the meetings and you talk a lot and sometimes it's kind of off topic and you know it's generally enjoyable but there is a lot of it i even kind of timed you one time and it was honestly in a meeting of five people you talked for almost 40 percent of the time and then outside of the meetings you kind of don't or like a great example after the event we threw last month you just kind of took off right when it ended and I went with you and then the three women in the group did all the cleanup and then afterwards one of them mentioned it to me like hey you know you guys just left and we did all the cleanup and it's like is that the message we want to send to our women comrades like I don't I want to blame you totally for that but it was your suggestion to leave I agreed to it and I shouldn't have but yeah, just a few people have brought things up to me and I wanted to bring it up to you. And like, it's stuff I have trouble with too, like helping out and letting other people, especially women, talk, listening to what they have to say. It's just really important. And like, you know, we're in this organization together and we all wanna feel like everyone's contributing and everyone's contributions are valued and people are showing that value by taking on their fair share. We love you and we love the work that you do do, but this kind of stuff can make people resentful and like nobody wants that to fester so first of all thank you for sharing that and and bro thank you okay you're not upset so i've been like thinking i should say that for like a week but it's like uh bro it's never fun to hear something like that about yourself or to even consider that might be true for you but i can tell that you brought this to me without ego because you're my bro or bros i'm your bro yeah, and you want to be a bro to me bros. and let me know how I'm being perceived. No one wants to be seen in a way that they didn't control. You yeah, know? exactly. And then like if we did let resentment grow and then like all of a sudden people are mad at you and you don't even know why and then creates all this tension and it's a yeah, it's important to talk about these things. Because if as Mr. Rogers would say, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And you know, this is manageable and we can talk about it and I'm just glad you're open to listening, bro. That it means a lot to me. I think it'll mean a lot to the rest of the group as well. No, it's definitely something that uh gotta work on. Thank you. And from that day on, that brochalist began to notice every time that he was speaking over a woman or that he wasn't pulling his fair share. And though he wasn't perfect immediately, over time, he did become perfect. He became the most proportionate contributor, a real team player, someone who not only did his fair share, but made sure that everyone else felt welcomed and able to do their fair share. And in probably one of the greatest moments of his life. He actually ceded some of his time as a speaker to one of the women in the group who, in the process of that meeting, she managed to find the political solution to climate change and played an instrumental role in implementing it. It was obviously a complex thing. Lots of people uh, played heroic roles in that struggle, but the idea came from that meeting and that one woman and that brochalist who ceded his time to her. And that's a brochalists against patriarchy moment.
so there's the sort of day-to-day organizing of, you know, like getting people together, inviting people out, the making the phone calls, the spreadsheets, making sure that you have the lists of everyone who and what their skill sets are, plugging them into the right thing in the context of union organizing, mapping the workplace, stuff like that. But then there's also the sort of like strategic towards the ends that you want to create, looking for like those strategic choke points where you have something on your enemy in some way. And it, like with your boss, the ability to stop working is a choke point. What do you mean by choke point? Like, So it's like a place where you have a strategic ability to influence something. So like even writing or calling a politician, it's not like a sort of like choke point in itself, but politicians might have vulnerabilities that you could be aware of. Say like they're elected based on their credibility on X issue and say so like this politician's choke point in a sense, and maybe choke point is a weird word, but like the place where you can strategically like pull gains out of the situation, mm. being like, what is this politician afraid of? What alliances does this politician have? Like, that's just the example of like interfacing with a politician, but like work stoppage in the workplace. Marx thought that was the choke point that would end capitalism. Olympia Assembly did a blockade in Olympia of like fracking materials. So like the train full of fracking materials is going through this like leftist college town. So they like, oh, we have a choke point here that if we put a blockade on the fracking train route, the train can't go through. And so we're able to like severely inconvenience them. So yeah, that's sort of what I mean so by like choke str- points. Strategic it's- areas of leverage, maybe? Yeah, that's a good way to put Tenants it. Tenants not paying their rent. That would be like another one. Rent strikes. It's like can be a choke point. Yeah, it feels to me like kind of focusing on those choke points. It's a tactic. It's like something that's like important to keep in mind when crafting a strategy. One thing that you said that made me think of how different actions in different contexts can be good or bad. For instance, you like calling your senator might make no difference just doing that randomly. But if it's part of like a concerted campaign, it can make a difference. So I think like even going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning with how like organizing is putting order to these tactics. So you sort of have a grab bag of tactics. You want to set a goal and then figure out what tactics sort of add up to reaching that goal. So I think those tactics can be applied to different choke points. Earlier you mentioned this sort of like hypercritical viewpoint that it has this bias towards a lack of action where we can't do a protest unless it's absolutely the most perfect protest imaginable, or that if a protest or action isn't good enough, then it's a sign that we're all liberals and we suck. So that bias towards inaction seems really powerful. How can we push for biases towards action? I think it's really important when either if you're starting an organization or joining a new organization, I think looking for a culture that's encouraging is really important. One that values people's work, even if it's not like the capital P perfect action. I would also say that the sort of perfectionism that we find on the left, there's just there's a lot of media that's just like very, very critical of like any action is not being complete. I think it it really does a disservice to experimentation. As best I can tell, no one's like cracked the code of like perfect organizing yet, given that we're still living in a capitalist society careening towards an ever more fascistic future, as far as I can tell. So it's like we haven't found the best way or the number one way to organize yet. So we have to try new things and learn from those things and mistakes happen. Perfect things are hard to make. So mistakes are going to happen. We have to just know they're going to happen. And we have to be ready to look at those mistakes, learn from them, move on from them. I would also say that sometimes like people are like, well, why would you try this? We already tried this 15 years ago. 
or why would you try anything different? We tried this and it worked already. Every campaign, every organization, every moment in history is a little bit different. So we also have to be ready to like experiment with new and old tactics, new and old strategies, and just sort of see how they map onto the current moment. And just being comfortable with that like kind of experimental idea, I think is really important. And reflecting that in your culture, it comes from being like supportive of the people around you, kind of believing that they do have the best intentions in mind and being grateful for the work that people are doing, even if it's not, you know, always perfect in your imagination or perfect the way that you want it to be. Just like making sure that they know that that they're appreciated for, for trying these new things. You mentioned mistakes, and I think people can be so afraid of making mistakes. And I think that's where the like kind of paralyzing, critiquing every idea so much that you don't do anything rather than trying something like comes from. It's just like, if you've done nothing and you didn't achieve anything because nothing seemed good enough, then at least you didn't fail. And like people hate failing and they hate making mistakes and they hate other people seeing them fail. What you're talking about is so important because it's like just inviting people to give it a shot and uh, see what happens. And it's okay if it's not perfect. And if you make a mistake and like, we're here for you and we can (laughs) try it again or try something else. Maybe along with a Mr. Rogers theory of organizing, we can have a Miss Frizzle and the Magic School Bus theory of organizing around like, take chances, (laughs) make mistakes, get messy, you know, sort of applying the Magic School Bus framework to your organizing life. It also makes me think of the painting guy, the um, happy accidents. Bob Ross. Bob Ross, yeah. Sometimes you accidentally mispaint, but then you still can make it work as part of the whole picture. (laughs) so wholesome (laughs) yeah i feel like our uh, podcast is kind of aggressively wholesome just imagining this sort of like set of political organizing philosophies based on children's entertainers (laughs) it's a wonderful project if anyone wants to work on that i just feel like there's a lot of wisdom in there and like people want to get these like basic messages across to kids and it's important it makes sense too where you have like a cultural bias towards like too much cynicism and like too much hopelessness all the time and like this dystopian underlying current like you can't show that to kids so like that's the one place you can find media that actually has right, like relatively right. optimistic open-ended messages because it's like literally directed at children and it's just too cruel to tell them what we all think about the world <laughs> so <laughs> we like protect them from that i'd like to think it's too cruel to just like always assume the worst also for adults you know i feel like <laughs> the left is really into that just like leaning into the doom and gloom sometimes and i'm like let's just yeah, like, let's be nice to each other and be excited that we can maybe do this. You know, if we don't think we can do it, like, how are we going to convince other people we can do it? It's a hard sell when you're like very in cynicism as an organization or yourself or as like, you're like, this is a campaign we're doing, you know, to change the world, but we know it's going to fail. So whatever. Yeah, come join us. Yeah, so fun. One of my favorite quotes on our first season was someone that said, a revolutionary must be an optimist because you have to believe that what you're doing can have some kind of effect. And it's exactly that. It's like if you don't think it's going to change anything or if you can't at least convince yourself it might change something, then like how why are you doing it? Yeah, such a sad idea. The person tirelessly working who is also completely convinced that it's all for nothing. And just that's actually sort of a real thing, though. Like people are like, well, at least I'm not like a shitty liberal, you know, like I'm failing, but I'm failing to ideologically rigorous (laughs) standards. So that's good. Can you even do that, though? Can someone like really work hard? And really not believe that it's worth it. Like, if you're not even getting, like, a paycheck or something, like, I understand you could do it in that context, but, like, what would even keep you motivated? Like, how would that... Do people do that? Is that... 
I think people do that, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't people even do understand yeah. what the psychology would be. Well, like one person I comes to mind that has said pretty much that exact thing to me, and she says that she stays in it just sort of for her mental health of like feeling like she's doing something. But I don't know. It's very weird to me. I don't get it. I'm like, I, I want the outcome of my actions to be positive in the world. Like, that's part of why I'm, I'm doing anything yeah mm, that's the sort of tension between like expression-based politics and like outcome-based politics seems to me like it's really close to like the center of the question of like what organizing is or like when you're listening to this and you're like oh i'm into politics i haven't really done very much but like maybe i could do stuff what does it mean to be an organizer i want to say like the emphasis on outcome is really important and like it's cool to do art it's like cool to do like have a really good sign but like is that sign a way to meet with other people and form networks and then build towards bigger actions or is the sign just like i want to have the best sign and that's it not to shit on signs i think they're great an essential part of leftism something can be political without being organizing and like things that are political are still really great so like you know, self-care is political a little or We were talking a little bit about like how resting is part of organizing, but like self-care itself is not organizing. That's something that's maybe political and important, but it's not organizing itself or like making art. This can be something that's political. Art is political, but that might not be organizing or even just like taking time to like read a book on political theory by yourself. This is important and political, but it's not organizing. And so there's a lot of room in the world for political actions that aren't the same as organizing, but you know, what Amy and I sort of felt when we were making this podcast is just we wanted a little more organizing in the world also just because we didn't feel like there's a lot going on for new people who were like whoa like okay I did the political things but how do I get into the organizing side of this so just sort of looking at those as like slightly different things you're also like organizing is about for me like multiplying impact so when you help other people get involved and start to organize other people you're able to do bigger things together than you could do on your own, like making one sign is again, it's political. It's a good first step if you haven't expressed yourself politically before, but organizing a march so that 100 people come with signs at the right moment so that the right politician sees it. And like that is way more impact. You can get more done together. Or sharing your paints and inviting all your friends over. So like 20 people make a sign with your paints that you bought. You know, that's great. That's cool. Yusufrak. <laughs> exactly. Make a paint library. <laughs> Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. This is just a reminder that if you haven't read these three books, this group is not for you. And not only is this group not for you, but this movement is not for you. I don't want to spend my emotional energy explaining simple things to you. Just Google Murray Bookchin, Google Emma Goldman. We're never going to have a real movement until everyone knows communization theory. End of rant. We shouldn't be sensitive intellectuals. We should be pragmatic people. We should act. We should act without thinking. We should run out into the streets right now, throw books out the window. Books are done. Books are what built this garbage society. We need to stand up to books and we need to stand up to the ruling class at the same time. Polysyllabic words, gone. Single syllable words from now on. We're not reading, we're not thinking, we're not getting up in our heads. We're getting out on the streets. End rant. 
Okay, stole my end rant ending to the comment thing, but that's okay. During the Spanish Revolution, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's in books. It was commonly said that anarchist books are weapons against fascism. And I would add that they are the weapon because if you don't have the right ideas, your actions aren't going to have the right form, the right content. Your actions are going to be like an inflatable tube man flailing around, not achieving anything, just arms all over the place. You might sell a few cars that way. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that, but you're not going to bring about the revolution. And frankly, it's a privileged position for you to just assume your ideas are perfect without ever even, as you said, thinking. You've got the privileged position, buddy. Us working people, we go to work, we sleep, and then we act. We don't read. How could you use the master's tools to take down the tool shed? All you're doing when you go to the library is you're indoctrinating yourself with the capitalist propaganda, all the books that they allowed under their corrupt system, with an imperialist, colonial, capitalist mindset. Every book you read, the library is where the revolution goes to die. Hey, I just wanted to weigh in here. It seems like movements often need a little bit of everything. So your ideas and theory might actually work really well with somebody who really wants to take action and build something really cool. And maybe you didn't need to argue about which one was better, but maybe you could work together to learn from each other. Now that I think about it, I can't expect everybody to read all these perfect theory books that I do love and that is not a privileged position. Anyone can get a library card and it is kind of privileged to expect everybody else to know what to do while you don't think. But that aside, we do need to do things and to help because that's important too. So I didn't think on this, but now that I've done the act of reading this post, there might be something to the idea that there's an interplay between theory and action, and to pick an extreme binary like this is antisocial and frankly bizarre. I think it's going to be a really bright future for our movement if we can all evolve so quickly. Just joining this conversation late, but I'm not excited about this. I haven't tried this out and I haven't thought about it that much, but it really seems like things are bad and they'll probably just get better if we do nothing. Please don't talk to each other. And I haven't followed any of you. I never follow anyone or do anything, but please, please just stop. Now that makes even more sense because this is hard. Reading all these books is hard. Doing things is hard. That's why I don't do things. Mostly just read. If you just do nothing and everything will get better anyway. I like that idea. I'm out. I quit the movement. Going to the beach. Some of the best points I've ever heard all around. We should neither study nor act. Who's got time for that stuff? I'm going to the beach. Wait, but I felt like we just had like a really cool moment together. If you just reconsidered this, I, I think we could work together to build a really cool movement. I think we should ditch this loser and meet up at the beach, but I'm not going to tell you what beach I'm going to or give you any contact information, but like maybe I'll just run into you there. Perfect. Yeah, I'm going to make a bonfire on the part of the beach that I'm going to that I'm not telling anybody which part of the beach it is. And I'm going to burn all of my books and also my computer so that I never have to look at this Twitter thread again. For me, going to the beach sort of feels like an action right now. And I'm trying to take a break from that. Definitely going to ignore the aforementioned losers thoughts and ideas. I think I'm just going to sort of log off and do neither thought nor action for a while. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. And now it's time for a Wrongtopia History Moment. 
So today we are going to be looking at the life and the work of activist and organizer Olivia Ortiker, one of Wrongtopia's most famous and prominent activists. She, of course, organized and freed workers in the sulfur mines. She was born in the pits, horrible childhood, but she managed to come out of it stronger and not only escaped the mines herself, but completely reorganized the ways that they worked so that people were liberated. And when asked about how she did this, she said that she did it the same way you do any kind of organizing. You start with four basics. You got to know exactly what do you want, who has the power to fix the problem, what tactics might work to fix the problem, and where do we have leverage? Some apocryphal tales actually say that those were her first four questions when she was being raised in the sulfur mines, but historians don't think that's actually true. Another element central to her organizing theory, the phrase socialize to organize to mobilize. She would say that you can't expect people to march in the streets together if they don't even know each other's names. Treat one another with kindness and decency, have fun together in addition to working. But probably her most famous contribution was more psychological and narrative-based. In a very famous quote, she said, what people think happened is just as important as what actually happened. And what she was pointing to with this was that, you know, sometimes power will concede a victory, but then spread a counter-narrative about how ineffective the whole thing was, trying to lower morale, and that it's important for organizers to be ready not just to fight for what they need and win, but also to define the narrative about what happened, whether they've won or lost. It was an amazing, heroic life, tragically cut short at a time in which she planned to make a speech to unveil the deepest, most important theory of organizing that she'd ever come up with. She said this was the one that would tie it all together. It would tie her work together with Adam Rundog's, many of Wrongtopia's other historical famous organizers. She had a speech all prepared. She was about to give it when a train hurtling 250 miles per hour off its tracks slammed into the stage killed her. There were no notes, and nobody knows what her theory was. And so today we must be contented with visiting the Natural History Museum, where her liquefied remains are kept in seven separate vials on display. I'm just imagining someone listening who they're intrigued about organizing. They're like, oh, but I live in stupid Winnipeg. There's no organizing going on here. There's nothing for me to plug into. And I want to tell that person, yeah, there is. Check it out. Google housing Winnipeg. Try to find networks of maybe Facebook groups or like people using political Twitter tags thing and like get connected with this stuff because it's like already happening everywhere. And I think there's also like a, well, I'm going to create this new organization that's going to perfectly synthesize things, you know, that once people follow this way of doing it, then we're going to totally get it done. But there's actually like already existing networks of good people doing good work that really, really, really need your help and are about to burn out without you. One thing that we really talk a lot about in the podcast is just like basically organizing your friends to do political things. So like organize your friends to do a letter writing night or organize your friends to go to a protest. And like one of the things that, you know, I just want to say to whoever is listening about this is that like you're especially positioned to reach the people that are already socially connected to you in your life. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately is like not siloing my political work and like 
just my political meetings or just in my political organization, but being like, hey, like, this is who I am. I'm really excited about these utopian ideas. And I don't want to just say to my quote unquote normal friends, like, well, you're not my political friend. So like, we don't have to talk about this really important part of me. So that's like one thing to think about is that you can always just start by talking to the people around you and trying to organize the people around you. And then like some of the organizations we talk about in the podcast, which have actually been around for a while, things like Anarchist Black Cross are Food Not Bombs. These exist in in many different cities, and they also are usually open to inviting new groups in. So if there's not like a Food Not Bombs or a Anarchist Black Cross in your area, you can usually start one and get connected pretty easily. So that's like another place to start. As far as like anti-authoritarian left organizing There are groups which I'm not super involved with, so I'm hesitant to kind of like, yeah, I just don't know exactly how the process of getting involved works. But things like Black Rose, RDSA, Libertarian Socialist Caucus, these have in the U.S. at least like a presence in multiple cities and they are looking to like open new branches of those. So those are like also places where you even if you don't want to be involved in those organizations, you might be able to find like resources on starting a like minded group in your area just by like talking to them about how they like to open their federated groups. But yeah, I mean, Google's great. (laughs) On the other hand, (laughs) there's so many different groups to get involved in, too. I mean, we push this in the podcast also. Like, there's usually some group somewhere near you that needs more people or would be interested at least in talking to you. They're out there. Yeah, I think the chances that there's no organization for you to join wherever you are is like extremely small. So go looking for Facebook groups, go looking on Google. And then a thing that I see happen a lot is that people will show up at a group and expect it to be very clear what to do. Like, oh, here, just do this. Like, welcome to volunteering. And obviously, we talked about how it is important to help people plug in by giving them small things to do, but not every organization will be able to do that. So when you do find a group to join, trying to like take initiative and notice those small, possibly invisible things, like putting things on calendars and booking rooms and trying to proactively take the initiative and and do those things can be a good way to start being involved with the organization, even if they aren't like, here's a volunteer thing, go do this. Unless you join one of the communist organizations that'll just be like, go sell newspapers. It's a very specific task. Some people like that sort of a direction. (laughs) Nothing against newspapers. (laughs) It's just like funny because I think people want that. They want that like, here, just go sell this newspaper. If you're in a position where you're in an organization that has people coming into it, like there is something to learn from the Trotskyist newspapers. It's great to have something that just anyone off the street can immediately do and feel like they're part of the process. It's interesting because on one hand, like if you're at the level where you're organizing large amounts of people on behalf of a group, we should be ideally looking to create those types of situations. But for the people who are just getting started organizing, it's good to have a word of warning that that's probably not going to be there. So like, (laughs) it's like we're giving the same advice to two different groups of people in inverted ways. This is the thing too, is like a new volunteer for an organization and I've got this experience myself as I'll like shoot an email and be like hey I have these skill sets I'm totally willing to help just let me know and I'll volunteer for you to do this project and someone's like oh that sounds cool and then they never get back to me forever and then after a while I'm like well I guess they didn't want it but the reality is they do want it they're just herding cats on a level that's beyond my imagination. So like the onus also is sort of on us as individuals coming up to organizations to like recognize their limitations 
and be sort of persistent. Like, no, no, I really want to knock doors for you. Please let me knock doors. Which actually, that reminds me just another broad subject around organizing, which is like the power of conversations and narrative. And I think on the left, we often sort of like forget the fundamental unit of politics is conversations. The fundamental unit of organization is conversations, whether it's a conversation to, hey, come paint these signs with me or, hey, come out to this event, introducing people to ideas or things that they can do, not just doing things, but asking people to do things. Mao said, power comes through the barrel of a gun. But I say, that's wrong, Mao. Power comes through the barrel of a conversation. That's my inversion of Mao. (laughs) Barrel. I think my version of this idea is uh, maybe the real revolution is the friends we make along the way. You know, inviting people to be part of the friendly anarchist group. Hey, come talk about books and it's fun. It's not always easy to just have the conversation. I think people, it's actually harder to have like just a lot of friendly conversations sometimes than it is to like just send emails. And I think it's just because emails feel more like work. You're like, oh, I'm doing this really important political thing because I'm like doing something that feels like work and then you're just like out there talking to people and it's like oh is this really organizing I don't know but I think it's important also strikes me as like how important interpersonal skills would be for any of this like you're talking about how fundamental conversations are but okay well let's take the principle of complementarity here and help explore this because maybe there are people who don't have like extreme social skills they aren't willing to go out and knock doors they aren't willing to go talk to strangers and be like hey we should have a fundamentally different society throw your feedback at me i'm ready to take it that's not a conversation that everyone's going to be like super comfortable in but i think the overall principle of complementarity There's different things that people can or can't do. The work of organizing, like you said, is making sense of it all, putting everything in the right place and having cultures that allow people to like move towards the places where they can be most valuable, use their skills. We want as organizers to push people's comfort level, but like not too much where people are doing things that they're like fundamentally unwilling to do or unfit for. But yeah, stuff like the spreadsheets, phone calls, emails, and stuff like that. There's like a spectrum here where people can be met where they're at and plugged into different places. Totally. I think it's also like letting yourself do the things you enjoy. So like there's all kinds of different work to do. Like I think Liz said, sending an email feels a little more like doing the work of organizing. But like I think there's plenty of people who would say that a conversation felt more like doing the work of organizing. So doing the things that you enjoy doing as a big part of it too, which also helps fight some of the martyrdom or the like burnout. If you're like, oh, I'm doing this because I enjoy it and I get more energy from doing this, that can be a lot more positive than doing the thing that you're like, oh, I have to do this. I'm doing this because it has to be done. Really interesting stuff and an awesome podcast that everyone should check out. Before we wrap up here, is there anything else to our aspiring organizers out there that you want to make sure that they know? Well, I'd say, you know, just believe in yourself, trust one another and get organized. That's all you got to do. That's lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the show (laughs) thanks for having us and now it is time once again for a wrongtopia history moment today's wrongtopia history moment is going to be focused on the famous poet and activist genius skiberg ii they are famous for their three-part phrase on how to organize effectively in the workplace map them scare them escalate them now, Genius Skiberg II, they were involved in all sorts of action, you know, tenants unions, workplace unions. They also organized protests, speakers, participated in a zine for years. And actually, now, a lot of Genius Skiberg II purists don't like to admit this is true, but Genius Skiberg II did run for city council. 
and came so close to winning. And it's it's fascinating to think of what could have happened. So Genius Skiberg II's three-part thing broke down like this. When you're organizing a workplace, make a map of all the people who work there and try to figure out what their relationships are. This is useful for you. Who are the smokers? Who speak Spanish? From that, you can be like, okay, well, we have these older Spanish-speaking people who work in this one department, so we need to find someone who can talk to them. And maybe we'll get to them because they're a smoker. And through the smoke pit, we're talking to all the smokers and getting them sort of radicalized around it. So this framework of mapping is very common now, but originally traced to Genius Skiberg II. Number two, scare them. Your boss is more easily scared than you think. If you're taking steps to organize, you can do things to throw off your boss, like breaking protocol in unusual ways. If you're well organized, right, even something as small as like wearing a button to work or something like that, the same button, it's unsettling. It shows that you're all unified. Or you can go and like eat lunch in a different place instead of all eating in the break room, eat in the courtyard at once. Do things that throw them off. This demonstrates to your employer that you're organized and you're willing to take action. And finally, escalate them. When you're organizing a workplace, as Genius Skiberg II taught us all, take a series of actions which increase in intensity over time. You start with something small, actions that are easy to take, like signing a petition or something. And then from there, you turn up the heat slowly over time. You deliver that petition to the boss all as a group. You all wear the same clothes. The benefit of doing this is building solidarity and morale amongst people in your workplace. If you go too big, too fast, and play your biggest cards, people on your side might be scared to take action. And Genius Skiberg II taught us that actually if you start small, you get well organized, you all start wearing the same smiley face pin to work, then you do a petition that you deliver and so on and so on. You give the bosses the impression that the worst is yet to come and they're more likely to respond to your demands if they feel like they're in for worse if they don't. The benefit of starting small is that you can build organically and build the support of your fellow workers. Unfortunately, as many of you know, Genius Skiberg the second earlier this year. Now, this is an ancient history. This is recent stuff. Yeah, it's rough. It gets all of our emotions up. Genius Skiberg the second was doing what any of us would do blocking a train that was full of vials of the liquefied remains of famous wrongtopian activists. Yeah, and you know where that train was going? Yeah. The Sky Cities, where only the rich could view the vials. So those motherfuckers were taking our vials, the people's vials, of all the liquefied remains of all of our most famous activists to bring to their museum and a Sky City for the rich. And know what? Genius Skiberg II and friends and comrades stood up to that and said, no, we're going to block that train. Those vials belong to the people. We're going to set up a blockade. And good luck getting those vials of human remains to your billionaire's Sky City. Not on my watch. <sighs> and as you all yeah. know... Um, Tragedy struck. The train containing the vials slammed into the, the camp, liquidating genius Skiberg. The second, their liquidated remains were collected in vials that day and transported to the Sky City floating above Rongtopia. Yeah, a dark day in our history. It's like there's seven vials per act. Do they need all of them in the Sky It's just greed. I don't even want to think about the level of horrific greed in the floating billionaire sky city above Rongtopia and all those precious vials I would stop that train <laughs> I'd be in the sky city now in a vial myself you know if blocking trains stopped anything they'd make it illegal 
What's even more of a tragedy is that prior to that action, Genius, Skiberg had said that they had discovered the perfect action that could achieve all ends. Yeah, synthesizing the work, obviously, of Olivia Ortiker, Adam Rundog, and others. Yeah. Genius Skiberg II were told, had it all figured out. I had been working on it in the camp that very day. All the notes were lost, of course. Their last tweet, aha, uh-huh, exclamation point, dot, 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 more to share soon, friends. But there wasn't any more. And that tweet has over 10,000 likes now, showing the lasting legacy of Genius Skiberg II. Map them, scare them, escalate them. Back to our show. Well, that about wraps up this here episode, partner. Or cowboy theme on that, that wrap-up. Cowboy-themed wrap-up? Yeah, do you want to Howdy, do partner. But hold on one minute. We can't go yet. Hold your horses. Hold your horse. Yeah, nice. Yeehaw. This doesn't have anything to do with activism, by the way. Don't do this in activism. Don't talk like cowboys. Don't talk like cowboys. Unless you're organizing cowboys. But if you're city folk trying to organize cowboys, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah, try to find other cowboys you can support in their organizing. Map the whole farm. Uh, barkeep, can you pass two frosty sarsaparillas down here while we do our ending wrap? And just as a cowboy, I would say that if you like that organizing advice, cowboy related or not, or just other great funny information on topics and you want to keep this show in existence as a cowboy, I know that takes cold hard cash. We're asking that you click your spurs six times in our direction a month. Gets bonus episodes, get access to a secret Facebook group, gets a Discord, gets early access to all the episodes one day in advance. Now, if that means you have to go on one extra shootout to get those six gold coins, then boy, howdy, I'd tip my very specific cowboy hat to you. As a cowboy, I just want to say that's a great deal. You know, people can tell you're a cowboy because you kind of talk like a cowboy and you talk about cowboy things. I am mm-hmm. more speak like everyone else, but people know I'm a cowboy because I mention it. You know, city folk, yeah. you think you're the center of the universe. They don't get it. City folk don't understand. Only cowboys know. Donate $6 a month to Seriously Wrong. City folk just don't get it. And a tip of the hat to our guests today, cowboy hat that is, and a wag of the lasso to Amy and Liz doing a great podcast called Rebel Steps, worth checking out. It's a digestible length and it's really good. No excuse not to do it. And do you partner want to go milk a cow? Oh, yeah. As boys. Yeah, that's why we ride horses to keep cows in one area. And then, then we get under there and milk them. Yeah, squirt that warm, others. fresh milk into big tin cans. Yeah, let's. What's that? Oh, there we go. That's an old familiar sound. Mm. Oh, I find this so relaxing. Do you want to put your mouth under the spray, get a bit, and swallow? No, <laughs> not when the audio equipment's here, partner. All right, all right. Well, That's we just should. Those cowboys spraying the milk right into the mouth. That's just cowboy stuff. You can't do that when city folk are around. Uh, no, I, I was trying to trick you. Maybe we'll turn this audio equipment off. We'll say goodbye. And we can get down to the fun stuff. Yeehaw, folks. That's a goodbye from us country boys. Country cowboys. cowboys. Country cowboys. Country cowboys. And thanks again to our guests. Go to rebelsteps.com to check out their non-cowboy-related show, which I don't say to draw a hierarchy between cowboy and non-cowboy. It's different. Different. It's not cowboy-related, but it's still good. But not just still good, because, you know, it's city folks who want to be the center of the universe. That's... Us country boys, we have an egalitarian conception of difference. Not everything needs to be cowboys, cowboys, cowboys. And scene, okay. So now we're not cowboys anymore. Oh, good. Yeah, I was getting 
confused. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you soon. Next time on Seriously Wrong. The year is 2060. The resistance has evolved and progressed to the furthest that it's ever been. A series of more and more niche reading groups seeking the perfect theory. Because as everyone knows, one cannot begin to act until one has the perfect theory. So what do you think about paragraph four here on page 210? Well, I think that paragraph's utterly insufficient. It needs to be rewritten from the start. That's not a radical paragraph. That's a liberal paragraph. It really? needs to be you struck so? from the... Absolutely. I think it's pretty good. Like, it might need some... Maybe we could break this down and do a whole session on this paragraph. That would have to be another day, because I do want to get through this page, at least during this meeting. We no. can maybe zero in on the paragraph later. I believe that back in the day, they used to think that doing things was the way to change the world. Before you even know what the perfect thing to do is? Yeah, that sounds like, crazy. Uh, <laughs> Hi, hello. We just heard about your reading group. We've been checking out some other niche reading groups, but the title of yours really captured our attention. We wanted to make sure it was perfect, yeah. absolutely perfect, before we started doing any reading. Yeah, you can really tell that you put the work in. But you do know we've completely condemned pretty much any reading group that you've checked in on from your curiosity. Well, that's like good to hear, I guess, that we're at the right one now. Yeah, but are you right for it? That's another question. Well, Have you read this uh, text? Well, we, we haven't yet. This is our first meeting of the reading groups. We thought maybe then we would start reading. You didn't reading. already read it. No, uh, no I'm sorry. I Part didn't of the know. reason we came is that we actually couldn't find the reading listed anywhere. Somebody just told us to come here because we didn't even know where to like find the information about your group. Yeah, do you have like a Twitter or a, a calendar or an email list? We've been having a lot of trouble thinking of the perfect Twitter handle. That's actually been tabled till the first meeting of next month. But yeah, we do usually come to the meetings prepared pre read the book so we can do a deep reading in the meeting and we're not kind of catching everyone up but you know you're new so you know we can maybe let that slide with gritted teeth would one of you mind just like writing down or telling us what readings to do or like is that something that you could do if you don't want to put it online yeah, we're just we're just trying to get involved we love when people want to get involved and then we love testing to see should they be allowed to get involved having some oh yeah you don't, want, you don't want imperfect people involved and just being honest you know a lot of people who come forward to the reading group and we just look at stuff objectively as we can and we're like hey look you're not a good fit you're condemned you're basically an enemy i don't think that's going to be the case for well, you maybe you maybe we could tell you what we're interested in and then you can let us know if we'd be good enough for the reading group that's not in the paragraph of the book mm, we're reading yeah, stop right the whole now. meeting for that that's a but, little bit needy uh, well now that you suggested it Sure. You know, we want to be open. Yeah, the wrench is already in the gears at this point. Might as well let the whole system break down. I'm so sorry that we interrupted. We're really trying to help. We're interested in trying to make a difference in the world and improve things for people in like a concrete, basic needs way. Maybe if we like work together with other niche reading groups, we could have more people involved and like spread ideas further. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, a rotten apple spoils the bunch. Now, if you could imagine every reading group as an apple, 
and all of the reading groups, except for this one, spoiled. It's even worse than the idiom goes. Many, many bad apples will spoil the one good apple. That's a better phrase. So we have no interest in this unity stuff. We've written fierce polemics and perfect polemics against them. Oh yeah, just as bad as the fascists. That was the title of my polemic. We need to figure out exactly what counts as a basic need, what people deserve and don't deserve. So before we spread any ideas or share resources with anyone, we really need to just zero in on this paragraph here, if we maybe get this meeting back on track, iron this out. Because if it's not ironed out, then the whole house of cards could fall. You need ironed ironed cards. It seems to me like it would be good to maybe start meeting some of some people's basic needs rather than just holding off until we know what all of those no. are. I, I'm not really sure why we would just wait I, <laughs> and just keep talking for the perfect thing. It seems very impractical. And I mean, like if we look around, I feel like things are getting worse every day. Like, I know that, like, you're still allowed to have your reading group. Other things like housing or, like, health care. seems like they're actually getting, like, harder for people. The police state is just getting stronger. We're just careening towards an ever more dystopian future. And it's just, it's hard for me to think that the perfect theory that you're looking for is, like, really more important than even just, like, getting involved in well, other and ways. things get worse and worse and worse, people will say, I need to start a reading group. And I need it to be absolutely perfect. And I need to completely destroy anyone who's a member of a reading group close to mine, because they're as bad as the fascists. And that's the structure, the dialectic of history, if you will. And from that tumultuous stew comes the perfect idea, the one set of perfect theories. So do you mind if we get back to paragraph four, paragraph four, page 132? You know, I think that this is the niche reading group for me. And like that last part about how like as things get worse, just more people start reading groups like I just can't deny that that's true. Yeah, I'm really impressed. You've not only have a reading group to work on the perfect theory, but you have the perfect theory of creating additional reading groups. Well, it sounds to me like you two are starting to think deeply. Yeah, I'm impressed so far. So I'm not going to tell you what the book is, but you can just look at the cover, try and find a copy yourselves. And hopefully by next reading group, you'll have read the whole book. But for the rest of this meeting, if you want to sit quietly and observe, that would be allowed, I think. Do you think allowed? Yeah, we could tolerate that. Quiet sitting. Thank you. It's really great to be in such perfect company. And so those four already perfect leftist activists eventually found the perfect theory. And once they did, everything clicked into place as history inevitably does because things had gotten bad enough that everyone joined the reading groups and then they all called each other out and the good reading groups were separated from the bad reading groups and then everyone knew to join the good reading groups and the people who were still allowed to join the good reading groups because they were good enough expanded the good reading group to the size that they were able to bring a fight fundamentally to capitalism, patriarchy, xenophobia, and scarcity, bringing about 10,000 years of world peace with the one big perfect idea. The only way it could ever possibly happen in history. The end. 
it's always nice when things work out <laughs> in the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> wow. If you want us to sit quietly, that would be allowed. It's just like the most antisocial way to welcome someone to a group. <laughs> the thing that's so hard for me about that sketch is that it's like also, it's not that far from reality sometimes. Like, I don't know. There's just like. <laughs> no, yeah, like every sarcastic thing in that sketch is like a really potent critique of like real people.